Do you ever just uh, look at the world and want to run away? Want to like disappear off the map somewhere where the troubles of the world don't have any bearing on you or the people that you love? We don't have to worry about crime or violence. We don't have to worry about what they're putting in your food and what your kids are watching and all the negative stuff that's influencing you. I joke with my wife all the time about dropping everything and moving to like Montana or Alaska or somewhere out in the middle of nowhere to sell all of our junk, all the stuff we don't even need and just settle down in a place where the world can't bother us anymore. I plant a big garden, raise some animals and just experience peace for the rest of our life. Maybe I sound crazy to some of you guys and maybe some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the thing is, when I look at the world, I find myself not quite able to just rest and let my guard down. You know what I mean? Like, I have this beautiful family, but I never feel like we're completely safe. I look around at the world, and I know that it's not right. And as much as I love our little house and this little state, and Rhode Island is great, I know that it's not home. Because what I long for is a place where my kids can run free, and I don't have to worry about what might happen to them. What I long for is not having to walk in the tension of being surrounded by so many people who don't understand and feel hostile towards what I believe. What I long for is not having to live in a world where everyone's obsessed with themselves and everyone hates each other for literally no reason. What I long for at the end of the day is for me and the people I love to feel truly safe and truly fulfilled and truly home. And I realize that Montana or Alaska or any other place, this side of heaven is actually never going to be able to deliver that to me. Because what I realize is that what I truly long for is to meet Jesus face to face. And in the meantime, me and my loved ones are exiles here in this world. And we're subject to brokenness and all the hurt and all the pain and all the ridicule and the insecurity. Even people who do run away and live off the map, like you can't outrun time. You can't outrun aging and loss and nobody can outrun sin. So it's like, how do we live in this state of exile? How do we live in this state of looking around and knowing that things aren't right, but believing that one day because of Jesus, they're going to be more than all right? We're kicking off a brand new series today that we're titling The In-Between. In this series, we're going to be reading the first letter written by the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, and it's sent out to all these separate, or all these believers living in different parts of of the world, and in this book, Peter is going to call these believers exiles, and that's going to carry two meanings, really. First, it's going to mean, yes, they're living in a place they didn't grow up, and they likely don't consider home, but the bigger meaning is that just like every believer, just like us, they are exiles in this world, waiting for the day when they see Jesus, and he makes everything okay. We're going to see Peter doing a lot of things in his letter, but some of the biggest things that he's going to do is he's going to point ahead to the hope that we have with Jesus in eternity, what we call heaven. And he's also going to talk about how we as Christians can live as Jesus desires us to live while we're in this state of exile, while we're in this in-between. In-between being saved by the blood of Jesus and then one day seeing him face-to-face in eternity. How do we live with hope in this uncomfortable in-between, in this messy middle, this place where sin and death and heartbreak are running wild? Peter hits a lot of amazing things in this first chapter about the Christian life in the in-between, and here is how he starts his letter. He says, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, introduces himself. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so Peter starts his letter to these and any followers of Jesus by recasting the vision and purpose for all of our lives. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And so sanctification through the Spirit means that for your entire life, you are continually being set apart from the rest of the world. You are continually losing your earthly self and adopting your heavenly self to look more like Jesus. And why are you doing this? So you can be obedient to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, in other words, sharing his message. And so don't miss the purpose for your life stated in this opening passage, whether you're a baker or a pastor or you're unemployed or you're deployed overseas or you're a stay-at-home parent or even if you're in prison, God's calling for your life is for you to continually be set apart to obey Jesus and share the good news. This is the first thing Peter wants us to know. You were created to be an obedient messenger. Now, we don't like to talk about obedience and submission. They bristle against our earthly desire to serve ourselves, but they're exactly what God has called us to do. That's why it says in the Bible in James, it says don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. Obedience matters. Now, I love grace, and I'm grateful for the grace of God, but I can admit that sometimes it's easy for me to forget that I'm supposed to be obeying God in everything that I do. I forget or I just ignore that I'm not here to chase the wind and do my own thing. Sometimes I need to remember that God is God and I'm not and I'm here to serve his purposes. He doesn't exist to serve my purposes. I could talk all day about this. I could confess my own shortcomings with this all morning, but Peter starts by reminding these exiled believers of their purpose in life to continually be set apart to obey Jesus and share his good news. And I love this because then Peter reminds us exactly what the good news is just in case we've forgotten what this is all about. Peter says, let let me remind you what God has done. That's when he says what we've read already this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we've been born again, death to life. See, the thing is, you didn't used to be bad, and now you're good. You used to be dead, and now you're alive. You've been resurrected to an inheritance that waits for you in heaven. You've been resurrected, and an inheritance waits for you in heaven. I think sometimes we take this for granted, but like, do you guys grasp the weight of this? Like, born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Did you ever find yourself, like, daydreaming about some big inheritance? Like, oh my gosh, I had an aunt that I never knew. And she died, and she left me 17 bajillion (laughs) dollars. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? 
But let me tell you something about that 17 bajillion dollars. If our economy tanks, it's gone. A few bad decisions, it's gone. There's a possibility also that money can be stolen from you, or if nothing else, the inevitability that you will die and all that money will stay here. You want to know about the frivolousness of money? Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the best books in the Bible. Everything falls apart. Everything fades away. But the inheritance God has set aside for you is eternal. Peter turns our attention away from this world and he puts our attention on heaven. Now, you know, I think we've done this thing in the church. I know that I've personally done it where it's like we look down on Christians who emphasize heaven too much. Like you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. We love to remind them like Jesus didn't just die to get us to heaven, you know. And and I'll be the first one to stand up and say, yes, Jesus absolutely did not die just to get you to heaven. There are things he wants you to experience in this life. There are things that need to be done in this life. But I have to tell you guys, man, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament really work hard to instill a heavenly hope inside of us. This entire letter of Peter is going to emphasize it. That's why he calls us exiles. He's letting us know you're not home yet. There's an inheritance set aside for you specifically. There's going to come a day where we meet our Savior face to face and he's going to wipe away the tear from every eye and he's going to right every wrong and none of the pain or heartbreak or brokenness is allowed to go there because it can't exist in his presence. And Peter emphasizes it's okay to be excited about that. Like we should be. It's going to be unbelievable. The Bible says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man could imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. My aunt just passed away unexpectedly two weeks ago. Man, I have to hold on to the hope that things are far better for her now than they were before she left. My mom passed away to cancer in 2020. I have to hold on to the hope that things are far better for her now than they were before she left. Life is hard. You know this. It's unpredictable. It's brutal. It's unforgiving. So we have to hold on to the hope that one day things are going to be far better for us than they are now. Let yourself ponder eternity for a minute. Let your mind go there and be encouraged by that. We're supposed to be so hopeful. And that hope will not only serve you in the next life, the hope will also serve you right now. That's why Peter continues. The very next thing he says, he says, in this you rejoice. So in this heavenly hope, this promise we have, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so, why should we hold on to a heavenly hope? Because we're going to go through some stuff in this life. We are, most of you are going through some stuff as we speak, are you not? I know that I am. There are no off-seasons in life, man. I don't know why I keep waiting for one. (laughs) It's like, I just want things to just calm down for a second. You're going to be waiting a while for that one. Life is just like hit after hit. It's one ball 
dropping after another. It's just this moving train that you grab a hold of and hold on to for dear life. You know this. I want you to notice how Peter very specifically words this. He says, in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. You know, sometimes Christians like to pretend that if you really believed, if you really had faith, your trials wouldn't affect you. Like if you really believed, you'd be like bulletproof glass and all the hardships of the world would just like bounce off of you. Your parent dies, that's okay. I'm just singing and dancing anyway. Cancer diagnosis, that's okay. I'm just singing and dancing anyway. Have a miscarriage, that's okay. I'm just singing and dancing anyway. How ridiculous. Now, I'm not saying not to worship God in your trials. You absolutely should worship God in your trials. I do, and it does immensely for me that I ever could have imagined to acknowledge that God is still good even when things don't look good. But this idea that just because we have faith that negative things shouldn't affect us mentally and emotionally and spiritually, that's not Christianity. That's insanity. That's ridiculous. Peter says, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials, and that tests the genuineness of your faith. It tests the genuineness of your faith. But my question is, who's the test for? Who's the test for? Because God knows. God knows the genuineness of your faith. The Bible says in Galatians that no one makes a fool of God. He knows you. He knows if your faith is real or if it's all fluff. And so who's the test for? The test is for you. One of the things that trials in this life reveal to us is where we're putting our hope. And so trials reveal to you where you're putting your hope. Because you might not know. You know how many people ask me how they can know if they're really saved? How do I know if my faith is in Jesus? I mean, I think it is, but like, how can I really be sure? Just wait for a trial to come. You'll show yourself where your hope is. If you lose your job and you run to the liquor cabinet, where's your hope? If you start feeling lonely and you pick up your phone and start scrolling to places you don't belong, where's your hope? Your trials will tell you everything you need to know about yourself. God already knows. God already knows. And if your hope is set on things that cannot fulfill you, your trials will reveal that to you. God already knows, but you're going to learn. I mean, you look for peace in your liquor cabinet, you're going to learn that doesn't work. Maybe for a second, but then you just feel worse. You start scrolling mindlessly or inappropriately on your phone to feel better, you'll learn it doesn't really work. Maybe for a second, but then you feel worse. Not a drinker or a scroller will take this illustration and apply it to wherever you run that isn't God. The outcome is the same. Sometimes you need a trial to push you back into the arms of Jesus because you've forgotten that you needed him. Have you experienced that? I have. Sometimes you need a trial to push you back into the arms of Jesus because you've forgotten that you needed him. And then sometimes you need a trial to reveal to you that your faith is legit. I remember when my mom died, uh, I, I expected everything to fall apart around me. Surprisingly to me, I felt hope, and I felt peace, 
and I felt confidence. And this is going to sound crazy coming from someone who works at the church, but I was like, holy cow, I really do believe this stuff. (laughs) I believe it. And it really does deliver hope and peace. And it's like I didn't really know until I had to know. And it did hurt, man. And we did grieve hard, but we grieved in the context of a heavenly hope. And you can maybe relate to that. Maybe you can't now, but hopefully someday you will. Because you never really know who you are and what you believe until everything else gets taken away from you. Trials are tough, but they reveal so many things that we need to be aware of. You grow in the trials. If plants only ever received sun and the rain never came, the plants would never grow, and neither would you. You need storms just as much as you need the sun. And so we have a heavenly hope. We have a purpose in our trials. And then Peter does something that I love. He goes on and he says this, and this is a mouthful. It says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And the things that, ha- and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, we could get into how poetic and beautiful that last line is. I love that. But do you understand what Peter just said? Peter basically said, God is the master orchestrator. Peter says, none of this is by accident, just so you know. None of this is by chance. All of this that happened was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. All the Old Testament writings point to it. He says, all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These are all books of the Old Testament. All of them were writing about this Jesus who they never even met. But you have the privilege of knowing. Peter says these prophets at the time, they didn't know it, but they weren't even writing for themselves or the people of their time. They were writing to you so that you literally sitting in this seat at South Point Church could look at their writings and then watch Jesus fulfill every single thing that they said and then stand back and be amazed at how in control God is and how perfectly he orchestrates everything. Just a quick statistic about those prophecies in the Old Testament. There, there are around 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 of those prophecies have come true to this point. The other 500 point to the future and end times. Every single prophecy written about Jesus in the Old Testament that could have come true did come true. That is nearly impossible. Greater minds than mine calculated that the likelihood of these messianic prophecies coming true, meaning the prophecies about Jesus' life on earth, the likelihood of them coming true was not one in a hundred, not one in a million. No, the likelihood of all these prophecies about Jesus coming true was one in 10 to the 2,000th power. Now, for clarity, if you're like me and you're not a math brain, 10 to the 12th power would be a one in one trillion chance that these prophecies would come true. 
But we're not talking about a 1 and 10 to the 12th power. We're talking about 10 to the 2,000th power. And so that's a 1 in whatever number this is chance that those prophecies <laughs> would come true. There's not even a name for this number. It's impossible. And yet, it happened. Peter says the magnitude and the perfection and beauty and mystery of it all is so profound that even angels wish they could begin to understand it. And this God loves you and sees you and died for you. This should be like rattling to us in the most beautiful and profound way. And it shows us that we can trust God on this side of heaven even when things don't make sense because we know that he's in control. He's a big God. I love the lines of the song, you're bigger than I thought you were. God, you don't fit in the box. You aren't restricted or restrained. You hold it all together. 10 to the 2,000th power, are you serious? And we're worried that that same God might not show up for us. He will. He is that good. How do we even begin to respond to a God like this? Peter tells us exactly how we should respond. He says, therefore, in light of all these things that I've told you, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The, the passage says to prepare our minds for action, be sober-minded, and set our hope fully on the grace that is coming soon. So how do we respond Peter says we respond by living in obedience and desiring holiness. Peter basically tells us to be holy. Be holy while you await the return of your king. He says you've been saved now. You've been raised from the dead. Your old ways no longer defined you. Your old life no longer controls you. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now just stay in it. Stay in it. I think we consider the word holy as like, some old church word. And maybe you picture an old man in a suit, like pointing his finger and talking about holiness and righteousness. I think we've kind of distanced ourselves in the modern era away from this idea of being holy. But Peter is clear, and this message isn't just for these first world Christians, it's just as much for each and every one of us. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. While you're living in this in-between, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, he's not talking about deathly, like, terrified fear. When he says fear, he's talking about a sincere, legitimate, and reverence and respect and awe for the one who created all things. 
I mean, if you ever stop to think about the sheer magnitude and power of God, it's really crazy that we ever question him or stop to negotiate with him, you know? We read the Bible, and so many times we judge God. Like, we, we read the Bible and we think, uh, I, don't, I don't really like that. I, I don't know if I agree with, with that. I, I think it'd be more loving if it was this way. I, I think we need to find a better way to word this, and that's not fearing God. That's trying to play God, and that's evil, and that's anti-God, just for the record. Fearing God looks like if I read something in this book and I don't agree with it, I'm wrong. If I read something in this book and I think something needs to change, the thing that needs to change is me. I'm not an authority. God is an authority. I submit to him and all that he is. If I read something I don't really understand, I still submit to it. If there's something in this book I really struggle with, I still submit to it. I'm the one who wrecked my life. I'm the one who killed me. God is the one who saved my life. God is the one who resurrected me. I need to understand this. There is no such thing as my truth and your truth. There is only one truth, and it comes from God, and if it's not God's truth, it's a lie. He is the almighty, sovereign God. I am a mess, and my role is, in this thing is to submit to him in everything. And it's like, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I submit to him? Because what's the alternative? To keep doing the same things that I've always done? And Proverbs says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. There's more hope for fools than for people who think they are wise. Why wouldn't I submit to God? How many times do I have to steer myself in the wrong direction before I let him take over? How many times am I going to wander around in the dark before I let God turn the lights on? We should want to be holy. I, like, who cares if I get judged for that? Oh, you're just so holier than thou. No. I, I just want to experience something good this side of heaven. I just want a fulfilled life. I don't want to waste my life. And following God and submitting to him has nothing to do with trying to be better than anyone else. It's just that, like, no offense to the world, but I don't want the world's life. I don't want the world's life. Have you seen the world's way? Like, it's so empty and fruitless and meaningless, and I don't want that. I want something good in my life. I want something real and everlasting, and God wants that for me, too. That's why he gave me a picture of life as he designed it to be. That's what his law is, and it's good. And when I approach it that way, man, obedience doesn't feel like chains anymore. Obedience feels like freedom. And God's law doesn't look like a prison cell to me anymore. It actually looks like a path to peace and purpose in this life. And man, I want that so bad, and my sin steals that away from me. And the thing about God is God isn't affected by brokenness. God doesn't get wrecked by anxiety and depression. God doesn't get ensnared in sin and have his peace stolen away because he's holy. And I want that. We should want that. Peter says to strive for that kind of life while we wait for the promise of heaven. And then he wraps it all up. He says, having purified your souls 
by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I I don't know how much time you've spent around newborns, but we've been blessed with three kids and all three of them nursed. And, And when I tell you there's not much in this world like the desperation of a baby who is hungry and needs their mama. And there's nothing like the pure peace and bliss that they experience when they finally get it. Man, it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. It's so innocent and it's so pure. They just need it. Peter says, we need to need God like that. Desperate for his presence. Longing for a deeper understanding of him and Every time we experience a glimpse or glimmer of him in this life, whether it's reading your Bible or singing a worship song or going for a walk outside in nature, whatever it is that makes you feel close to him and get a sense of his presence, we need to relentlessly pursue those moments with him. And when we get them, we need to cling on to them with everything we have because they are the only thing we are going to carry into eternity with us. Everything else passes away. In Corinthians, Paul tells us, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity when we see Jesus again. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then, in heaven with Jesus, I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And I love that. Don't be afraid or ashamed to have a heavenly hope. And don't be afraid of the trials in this life, man, but just learn to embrace the clarity and growth that they bring. God is in control. He's a master orchestrator. He's making everything new. He's worth trusting. And we should be eager to submit to him and experience everything he desires for us in this life. All we have in this life, every good thing, comes from God. And it's only a brief glimpse of the amazing things to come. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man could ever imagine all that God has prepared for those who love him. I cannot wait, you guys. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this letter of Peter. And I'll admit that I don't frequently think about heaven and eternity. I get caught in the whirlwind and mess of this life. But I understand that you came to save me from my sin, but to give me an eternal hope. And I know one day I'm going to see you face to face, and it's going to be like nothing I ever could have imagined. And all the brokenness and mess and hurt and all the things that mess up my life in this world, those things are not following me into eternity with you, Lord. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the peace that you offer in this life. I'm, I'm thankful for your law. I'm thankful for your commandments. God, and I haven't always been. I 
used to resent and struggle and, and be so angry that I couldn't uphold this and it used to feel like chains on me, but now I realize that your law is a gift to me, God, and it's a picture of the life that you desire for me. And I live in obedience because I experience peace in that. Not to earn heaven, Lord. You earned heaven for me on the cross. Your law is now for me to experience peace this side of heaven until I see you again. God, I pray that we're a community with a heavenly hope. I pray that we're a community that is eager to submit to you and obey you in everything that we do. We, that we're a community that desperately longs for you like a baby longs for the mother, God. And I pray that as we pursue you, that more people will come to know you and that your hope and the power of the Holy Spirit will flood our neighborhoods and our families and our homes until there's nothing left but the kingdom of God here. I trust that you're able to do that. God, help us to focus on you the way that we need to. We love you so much. We cry all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.